Welcome back to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. Today's guest is Beth Azor of the Azor Advisory Services Company out of Weston, Florida. Beth is known as the canvassing queen. In our conversation today, she is going to share her love of commercial real estate, tell us all about her multi-decade experience, why she got into the business, why she stays in the business, and why she's focusing her career today on making sure that more women invest in commercial real estate to create wealth for themselves and their future generations. Towards the end of our conversation, Beth mentions a conference in Orlando, March 8th of 2023, called the Women's Real Estate Investment Summit. After we finished recording, she offered a very special discount to anyone listening today who would like to attend that meeting. Please check out the show notes for the code, the discount code, a 25% discount to attend her real estate investment summit, specifically for women investors. Uh, Other than that, please enjoy today's show and I hope to hear from you guys soon. Beth, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here because in my world or our world, you have a great reputation as being the canvassing queen. Can't wait for (laughs) you to tell us all about what that really means for folks who might not be as familiar as I am with you. So welcome to the show. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do in your company? Sure, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Uh, So 36 years ago, I started in retail leasing. I joined a company in Miami after being in special events and fundraising and PR. So I know a little bit about your background as well, but I couldn't make any money doing that. And I've had my license since I was 18 because my parents were in residential. So I jumped over and did commercial real estate full time. And I was at that company for 18 years, all doing retail leasing. I grew from the training program all the way up to president. I was president the last six years I was with the firm. I helped grow the firm from 11 people to 150. And we did retail, office, industrial investment sales, all third party. I did partner LP with the owner of the company on nine deals. But similar to, again, your story, when my son was, I was a single mom at four, but I wanted to pick him up from school. So I left the 60 hour a week president job at that other firm to start my own thing, really not sure what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to start buying assets on my own account. And so I've been doing that for 18 years. I've, I own currently five shopping centers, just sold one a couple of weeks ago. The value is $80 million. And I have a side hustle where I train leasing agents how to lease space, aka Canvas, and fill their vacancies around the country. Um, Being 62, I've decided that I have a mission in life. So I'm happy to be here today. My mission is I found out two years ago that only 3% of investors in commercial real estate are women. And so I have a goal to get that to 10% by 2030. And um, I'm hell bent to do that. Uh, and that will be hopefully, you know, contributing to the sunset of my career as I weave my way out and, and leave it to you youngins. Well, I appreciate the fact that you want to call me a youngin. I'm, I'm not too far behind you. Uh, but it is interesting how I think you get a, you reach a point in your career in this business and you begin to say, what's my legacy? You know, what am I leaving behind? And, and you have such a great, deep career story, which which is awesome. There's so many different aspects and spokes that I can take you down. Um, and you you touched on a bunch, but I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about, because I know you've done it all. Like you've done the leasing, you've done the teaching, you've done the uh, development yourself. Tell me, when you did your first deal on your own, I want that story. When you said, I'm going to buy my, I you know, I've been placing tenants or helping owners for the bulk of my career, I'm going to create wealth for myself. Tell me that story. Absolutely. So in my prior company, we had sold an out parcel. So a small piece of land, it was one acre. Uh, Our client had gotten it back in a bankruptcy. He called us and said, hey, will you sell this deal? We ended up selling it for $2 million, one acre in South Florida. And 
there was a L parcel available next door to this one for 1.77 acres and General Electric was selling it for 1.2 million. I went to my boss, I said, this is a great deal. We need to buy this deal. And he said, no, it's too small for us. Fast forward six months, I leave the company. I'm out on my own. I want to buy my own deals. I, I for, kind of forgot about it. I drove by it one day. I went, oh my gosh, there's the sales sign is still on the piece of land. So I call up and I said, you know, what's the price? 1.2 million, 1.77 acres. I know it is underpriced. So I said, this is going to be my first deal by my, you know, as a GP, I'm going to put together friends and family. I took my three best friends to a Cuban restaurant that the window overlooked the piece of land. They go, why are we here? I go, and I said, look at that window, three women, my three best friends. You see that property? They said, yeah, I go, we're gonna buy that. No, we're not. I go, yes, we are. No, no, we're not. I go, yeah, it's 1.2. I'm gonna get 100,000 from 10 of my friends, you three included, and they all had some excuse. And I was like, well, screw y'all, I'm gonna go buy it anyway. And of course I started sending out, the, I created a package, sent it out to some other guys in the business and five of them you know, raised their hand and said, we're in. And then guess what? Of course, my three friends <laughs> jumped in too. So we ended up buying that deal. Uh, I thought I would do two restaurants on two ground leases. In the end, I did a Walgreens ground lease and the Walgreens developer came and said, name your price. We don't want to build this for Walgreens for a fee. We want to own it. And we ended up making 299% on our money, Nancy, in 18 months. And there was a lot that went into it. Like you, you can you can appreciate this while we had it under contract. I remember calling my partners, which were all in the real estate business. And I said, we've got this great Walgreens ground lease. We shouldn't sell, right? I mean, we should. this should just be in all of our kids' you know, trust funds. And, and one of my very conservative partners said, well, you know, throw out a stupid price. And if they, if they take it, you know, we'll take it. So that's what happened. But while it was under contract to sell, in the survey and in the title, which did not come up when I bought it, it turned out that there was a, a utility transformer that was supposed to be in an easement, but it was partially on our land. And the buyers are like, you know, we're not buying this until you get this big utility company who you know, to move this transformer. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So they wouldn't call us back. You can imagine the bureaucracy. I went and sat in that utility, in the regional office of the utility company for eight hours one day on my lap with a box of cookies. <laughs> Finally, the guy walking out at the end of the day, 530, I said, sir, I've been here all day. You know, could you just take my cookies? And, you know, he goes, well, what's up? What, you know, what are you doing? I go, I'm not here to nag you like my engineer is and my lawyer is and my, you know, but this is a, you know, a multi-million dollar sale and you guys kind of are, you know, put your transformer on my land and you need to move it. And I can't wait three months. And by the way, this was heading right into the global recession. Like I ever, all of the headwinds were like, close the deal because you never know what might happen. So they end up moving it two weeks later, the cookies worked. However, they left a sliver still on my property. And I just said to the buyers, look, you need to close it or we're dropping the contract. They ended up closing it and it was a great deal. My partners are like, when's the next deal? And I didn't know anything. I wasn't astute enough to know about 1031 exchanges. So gave everyone their money back. And then we rolled it. Then then the, the next deal came about six months later. So we wouldn't have made the time crunch anyway that we need for the 1031. But all those people went into my next deal and a lot of them are still my partners today. So that was my first deal. And, uh, it was a great deal to start, but you know, it kind of, even though there were a lot of problems with it, we made a lot of money and that is not always the best deal to start with, right? As you can imagine, it's kind of going to the casino and you win big, not always the great, great to win big your first time. Yeah. Cause you set the expectation that you can keep doing it. You're a little bit of a golden child and, and exactly. there's a lot of science in this business and a lot of art, but a lot of luck. Too, right. It's a just landing on the right. I mean, you had great experience to say, like, I know what that's worth. I know that the property is not that the listing price is not reflective of what the market value is right. and willing to take, you know, a gamble on that, which is great. And I did not know when I asked you that question 
that your first deal was actually a land deal. I thought it was going to be an investment deal. So I love <laughs> that story because for obvious reasons, I'm like, yes, um, it was a land yeah, deal. As we were- it was as we were prepping for this, I told you I hate development. I never from now on I'm bringing all my development deals to you. You know, I've done two Dad. and the after the first one I said I'm never going to do another one and then of course I did another one that I'm in the middle of today which is again going to be great, but um I just don't have the patience. I don't have the patience for you know dealing with the 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 cities the municipalities the land use councils the residential people nearby that you know we i have a a, a property that i bought an office building a 1970s two two story office building dilapidated but there were still tenants in there we ended up knocking it down and in one parcel i did a, a starbucks strip center and now i'm and then there's this front piece of land that's been available that we've been in um, approval process, and we just got approved to do a Wawa. Well, you can imagine the Facebook posts how the, all of the community wants me to make it a dog park. <laughs> you can buy it and make it a dog park if you'd like. I, I love that. I, I, you know, I once had a neighbor. Gosh, this is probably 15 years ago. He came up to me one day. It was at my mailbox. You know, after work one afternoon, and he's explaining to me how he bought 10 acres in this like rural community, backs up to like a thousand acres, and he goes. Hey, so uh, I know you're like a land expert. How can I make sure that that thousand acres never, ever gets developed? And I was, I was so taken aback by the question. And I just sort of looked at him and I said, you buy it, you buy the thousand acres and you never develop it. Like you really want to have 10 acres next to a thousand and dictate what they could do with their land? Like what? I'm like, I, I'm such a property rights person. I'm like, I don't think that's how it works. Crazy. Um, but it is crazy. And and you're right. It is. It takes an enormous amount of patience. And a lot of things can go wrong from a vacant land, vacant development perspective. So I. that's why I'm like, I love the fact that you put a piece of land under contract as your first deal. Um, so, so you made money there and then you rolled it into other deals. Tell me, how did you originally get into real estate even way, way before that? You said your parents were in it. Is that where it really started for you? Yes. So um, during high school and college, my I would sit open houses for my parents, you know, and then at 18, I got my license. So then all through college summers, I would sit open houses, condos, like developments they were working on. My mom was the property manager in Flagler Beach since you're you've spent time in Gainesville so you might have spent some time over there on the beach south of Crescent Beach and she was the number one absentee prop like absentee condo owner in that market she probably had 200 condos so we would get the calls in the middle of the night for the the air conditioning or the toilets and I'm like I am never doing this <laughs> I'm never being in your business you know fast forward ha 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 but um, and my dad was the salesperson and my mom was the property manager and then graduated from Florida State uh, English literature degree with a minor in communications. And I'm going to go do PR and special events, worked at a not for profit, making eleven thousand dollars a year. And so did the real estate on the weekends. And in two, within two years of working seven days a week, doing both jobs, the residential weekend sitting model homes in South Florida, I started selling the homes. So the income far exceeded what I was making at the not-for-profit. And so then I flipped over and said, okay, I'm going to do this real estate thing, which I immediately hated. I sat in a trailer reading people magazines and I, and I went to the developer saying, we need to have events <laughs> from my events background. Cause no, no, no. You just sit reading people magazine. And when people come in, we sell luxury homes, you sell them. I'm like, I made the biggest mistake. I loved my job at the not-for-profit and I left. I jumped for money. I was very upset with myself. And then a friend said, you need to get into commercial real estate. And I this, literally, I said, gross, selling land. How more boring could that be? <laughs> and they said, no, no, there's this thing called leasing. And they, I said, well, what's that? They said, developers build shopping centers and they put supermarkets and then you are the leasing agent and you fill out all of the space on either side of the supermarket. So you lease to the bagel guy and the dry cleaner and the insurance company and the boutique. And once you lease to those people, you're in their life forever because you help them achieve the American dream. I'm like, so where, where do I find that job? And that's how I got to the job in Miami where I started in the training program 
and was there 18 years. And that's how I got in. I, I remember walking into that office day one and the hair on my arm stood up. I said, I don't know what I'm going to, what I'm doing here. I don't even know anything about this, but my soul is in this place and in this industry. Isn't that great? I, I always love to hear how people get into their, their niche, right? Because uh, commercial real estate is, is pretty broad as an industry, but those who I think are most successful have a pretty deep niche. You know, they they do what they do really, really well. They know it inside and out. Uh, and I love the fact that you were like very intrigued with filling out inline space. And and as we were joking back and forth, like I can't think of anything worse than that. Yeah, <laughs> this is why I mean I love perfect- people, but just it, I think I would be very nervous if if somebody's you know, took a lease and their business didn't succeed. Like I think I would take it personally, which is also why I don't do residential because it's just too personal for me. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, I'm, I just got hired 18 months ago from the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He had an empty mall in Cleveland and they had the all-stars game coming and his team called and said, we understand that you like to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm called the canvassing queen because I go and knock on doors and I find local mom and pops that should expand. And I usually try to bring them to my portfolio, but I also help other people figure out how to increase their occupancy and their assets. And they said, if you could just get us about five pop-up tenants so that we're not embarrassed for All-Stars weekend, um, Nancy, I've been extended twice. We've signed 51 leases. I went into Cleveland not knowing a soul and uh, could not do any broker deals because the deals were two years or less. And I literally went out into the community canvassing, knocking on doors. And of the 51 leases we've signed, 48 are Black-owned businesses. And of those 48, 45 are women Black-owned businesses. And wow. uh, the my client because he's allowed me to do, not charge a million dollars a square foot, has changed lives in Cleveland. And it's super impact, probably the most impactful thing I've ever done in my career. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I, I love that because, you know, I think ultimately what one of the biggest lessons I've learned just interviewing women all over North America in different aspects of our world is that so many of us do it because it really changes lives and communities and the way people live their their everyday life. And it's just, it's something that, you know, I hear just repeated on every interview of, you know, what people are most proud of. And, and that that's really cool. Uh, pretty amazing that somebody with such stature in their own community couldn't find five or six pop-ups on their own. Just because they just, they weren't willing to do the, the work. Yeah. I think the team was busy doing way bigger things and he bought them all and they were going to make it a tech hub and then COVID hit. And so the mall closed for two years. So as the mall's just reopening, they're looking, you know, oh my gosh, in nine months, we're going to have millions of people here. And there wasn't anyone on the team that did what I did going out into the community and knocking on doors. They could have hired a local broker, but they had heard I was on Clubhouse doing something called Space Tank, where I was connecting yeah. landlords during COVID with entrepreneurs. And they heard that. And they said, this is the girl we need to come to Cleveland. And it turned out okay. It sounds amazing. So tell me, take me through a typical canvassing operation for you, like whether it's that sure. deal or one of your own. Take so, me through what you do. So just got a... Uh, Restaurant space back. Unfortunately, a gentleman didn't make it after a couple of years. COVID really kind of construction costs, which you know are were very high, um, approvals, permitting. So he, it took him a lot longer to build out. He he kind of went through his savings. We tried to help him out, but it just he had a it was a very odd name. Like people couldn't the, the name is so important on a sign. You know, if you're healthy foods. It should say healthy foods versus he had a very abstract name. I kept telling him to change that, but he was very connected to that. So he didn't make it. So over the weekend, what we're, what we're doing, we're hiring a cleaning company to clean it out. We're create. I created a video. I put the video on Instagram. I put uh, the video on Facebook. I'm DMing healthy food concepts through Instagram and Facebook 
looking up health food near me, acai bowls near me, and just DMing people, hey, do you want another location in Davie, Florida? It's a former restaurant, doesn't have a grease trap or hood. So I, I DMed probably 50 people. My, my uh, director of operations will work on the flyer, so pictures, flyer. And this week, my intern and I, we have 15 appointments lined up for, just from the DMing to show the space, but then we will also hit the streets and we'll go out. And for all the people we've DMed that I've identified as someone that I would like to take the space, we'll go see them in their restaurant, their existing location in South Florida. So we have a map with about a hundred of those uses. So it's dessert, cookies, cupcakes, acai bowls. So we pick a targeted use, we find them who's got a location already. Not that I wouldn't do a startup, but I'd like someone already in business and who wants another location in my geographic area is the hole in their donut. So we identify the hundred and over this week and next week, we will go drop off a flyer. We will walk in. We will not say is the owner here because you're disrespecting the gatekeeper. People go, well, you you have to get to the decision maker. Trust me, the gatekeeper will get you to the decision maker a lot faster if you don't disrespect them, assuming they're not the business owner. So we walk in, we say, hey, I just want to leave this flyer. We have a former restaurant space available in in Davie. If you guys are expanding, we'd love to show it to you. Quick, short, to the point. Nine times out of 10, that's the owner. He goes, well, wait, wait, I'm interested. What? Where is it? Give me the specifics. And sometimes it's not, they're the gatekeeper and they keep the flyer. And then I say, hey, who would I follow up with? And when you respect the gatekeeper, they usually give you the name and the number of the owner without you asking for it. And that's how it works. I just signed a 17,000 square foot bridal salon in Cleveland where I had DM'd her twice I had dropped off the flyer twice. So my fifth visit, she was in a mall. In my fifth visit, she happened to be in the store when I walked in. And we did. And she goes, oh, my lease is up next month. I would love to relocate to the mall, to your mall. And I said, during the conversation, I said, did you get my DMs and, she, she, and, and the flyers that I left? She goes, yeah, I, I got the DMs. I don't remember the flyers. I thought you were a scam. So very important to keep going back until you get the no. Like she, I kind of assumed, and again, 62, been doing this 36 years. I kind of thought she's not interested. Shame on me, you know, the vet learning from my own experience that she'd never given me a no. I had never gotten a response. Keep going until you get the response. And now she went into a former Brooke, two-story Brooks Brothers space, brought in her bridal gowns. Phenomenal deal. That's, that's awesome. And what a good lesson there too, because I think what I see, and, and my business is very different than yours, but what I see generally speaking is that people give up after, you know, one or two tries. And, and even I'm guilty of that sometimes, right? Like I want the low hanging fruit. I want the stuff. Well, in, in my business, again, is different because the, the cycle is so long. Uh, so what a great lesson of, you know, it was the fifth try. Well, there's, you know, there's a Harvard study that that says that, of the salespeople will call once, 70 will call twice, 50 will call three times, 30 will call four. And like by the fifth or sixth time, it's 2%. And the buyers buy after the sixth or seventh touch. What a great stat. Oh my gosh. So, so, and you know, when I'm buying shopping centers, I, I am calling the property owner who doesn't want to sell. And I and, and and until I get that quarterly, I call them every quarter. And until they start picking up and saying, no, Beth, we love you, but we don't want to sell to you yet. Don't worry. I know why you're calling. You'll be the first call until I get. And I'm very respectful and I'll give them tidbits. Hey, I just hired this guy as a paver. Hey, don't use this guy as the pest control guy. He screwed us. You know, I'm constantly giving value to the property owners that I want to buy from so that it's a value add and not just a pain in the butt. Hey, you want to sell yet? Hey, you want to sell yet? Hey, you want to sell yet? So I create relationships to, to the point is when they pick up, we, no, we're not selling to you yet, but how's the market? What do you think about the interest rates? And you cultivate the relationship. I just bought 2.25% of a nearby property owner's partnership. He hasn't sold to me yet. He's 89. He's putting me in his will. He said, my kids all know you're the one that they have to sell to if they're going to sell. But he had an opportunity where one of his partners 
uh, he had a partner that was a doctor. The daughters got the property. They didn't want it. They wanted to sell. They offered it to the other partners. No one wanted it. And he called me. He goes, hey, here's your chance. And I got, I now own 2.25. And I've been out, I've been trying to get that deal for 18 years, Nancy. Wow. That's a lot of commitment. It's a good deal. <laughs> That's a great story. So tell me, you know, when you, when you're out there and you're looking at these deals to make your own investment, to make your own purchase, what one or two things are you looking at that you say, that's the deal I want? What is it that makes one deal pop up above another one? 100% least screams to me the rent's too low if it's in a good market. So high in, I buy in high income markets because that's disposable income. Retail rents are based on sales. If the tenant's doing well in sales, they can pay more rent. Tenants can pay more, can do more in sales revenues in higher income markets. So when I am in a market where it's 100% leased shopping center and I know it's a high income area, and there's other properties that are doing well and, you know, Chick-fil-A lines and Starbucks lines and, you know, sushi restaurants doing up to $5 million. And there's a property that's 100% leased. That guy's rent's too low. That's a guy who's 89, who's owned it for 20 years and is very happy and is so proud that he's 100% leased and doesn't understand that the guy next door just did a $60 deal and he's doing $30 deals. So I look for fully occupied properties in high income areas. I like properties that do not have what we call elbows. So U-shaped centers. I want centers that are flush to the street. So if it's on US-1, I want it you know, parallel to US-1. I don't want it perpendicular because retailers love visibility and exposure. And it's really hard to lease in the elbow areas. I want properties that, that have the ability to have uh, big signage. So I wouldn't want to go into a municipality that limits, you know, signs to 12 inches and that, and I'll go in and do a facade renovation to get that, that um, national retail exposure that they want. So high income, because it, it usually means higher sales, uh, you know, supply and demand, you know, number one. So I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to buy a shopping center where I've got 5,000 acres next to me, because that's going to be 34 more shopping centers, and that will drive my my rents down. So I want to buy in markets that are very dense, that don't have ability to to become more have more developments nearby. Got it. Good, good, uh, good insight there. Um, yeah, really good insight. So when you're looking back at your career and you think about all the things that you've touched, is there anything super strange that pops up? Do you say like, "Wow, that was the strangest deal"? I haven't had any strange deals. I've had, you know, I, early on, I used to call, I find a deal that I wanted to buy and I would call the guys in my circle and they were, they would always poo-poo it. And I've got nine of them that nine deals that I didn't do because I was discouraged and someone else went and did what I thought should be done. Uh, bigger companies run by men. And I'm not ma ma male bashing, but I, I, I just stopped asking people for their opinion and their advice. Because what, what I tried to do is in my, my girlfriends who are in the business and who have invested with me, they stop, you know, stop looking back. And so what I say to myself is, what that did is that cemented my instincts on good deals. So those nine, I say that was my master's degree because I knew it. I knew what should be done with those assets. I let someone discourage me into not doing those deals. And then other people in my industry went and did those deals. So um, I don't, so I thought it was strange that so many people discouraged me. And so now I don't, I don't ask. Yeah. I, I, I double down, I triple down, I do it. And, you know, hopefully they're winners. Right. Well, and you have a, you know, a few decades of experience behind you now too. Uh, because, you know, I, I can look at a map of my region easily 
I've been doing this for 18 years and I can say, I knew that was going to happen. That was going to happen. That was going to happen. And I was four years ahead of the market. And I took my eye off of those assets because I was focused on something else that was a little bit shinier at the time. And I didn't, I didn't either do those deals or go after those owners. And I knew, I knew in my gut that that was going to happen only to drive by it. And I'm like, son of a gun, son of a gun. Yeah. It happened. Um, yeah. And I mean, I can look at my whole career like that. Go, yeah, I knew that was going to be the use that was going to go there. You know, because yeah. when you do this day in and day out, you learn and you absorb all of those trends. So speaking a little bit of trends, what are you seeing right now in retail? You know, because we've seen all the, you know, brick and mortar's dead and retail is dead. And I've been jumping up and down for years as a land broker saying retail's not dead. Retail's not dead. It's really about what you put there and how it's serving that community or overall region. Love to know your opinion. What do you think? How how was retail? Where are we going? What are the trends that you're seeing? So COVID was really helped retail, right? So before COVID, everyone thought that digital online e-commerce was going to just destroy bricks and mortar. And in fact, before COVID, I think the numbers were you know, I'd, I'd speak in audiences and I would say, what do you think the number of, you know, if if it's $5.4 trillion of retail sales, what percentage of that is e-commerce? And people would say 30 to 50%. And at the time, pre-COVID, I believe it was somewhere between 17 and 19%. During COVID, it went up a couple points. And then since COVID, it's dropped. and. The prediction always was it was going to go to 30% by 2030. And as an investor, I'm good with 70% coming to my bricks and mortar, especially when I fill my bricks and mortar with necessity-driven, you know, you can't get your nails done online, you can't get your hair cut online, you know, certainly shoe sales and apparel sales, the commodity-based products will be more online driven but but we found with covid that people really crave people people crave people and they want to be with people and the more retail that does experiential things like i have a boutique in cleveland that i'm it's a prospect of mine i haven't convinced her to come to my mall yet and she posted yesterday where they were having a yoga class in the boutique and that's the kind of stuff, you know, following what Lululemon has done for years. So retail's here to stay. We learned that with COVID, it was crazy how restaurants, you you cannot find an available restaurant. This is why I have 15 showings this week on the one that I have. You cannot find a second generation restaurant space in South Florida if your life was dependent on it. And that was what happened with COVID and all, and again, the population explosion we had down here in South Florida and the disposable income of the people that are coming. So retail is not dead, far from it. And now the whole, um, the whole new cycle is going away from retail is dead. And what else happened through COVID is where we had industrial doing our fulfillment it now the stores have stepped into that right the buy online pick up in store you're seeing floor plates floor, floor plates change where you're going to see a back of the house become the warehouse for some of these retail chains so retail's here you know but you have to be smart you can't be leasing to uh bookstores that could better be served by selling online yeah so i am glad you brought up the experiential component. Because I noticed earlier in our talk, you talked about where your education was and where your early experience was in your career. And that was your love of events and PR. And to me, you know, I have a PR background. I have a master's from the University of Florida in, in mass communication. And, and I use it more to help me in my business, right? Or more times than not, keep my deals out of the news away from the critics until absolutely it has closed or it, you know, I'm seeing a closing statement. 
you know, I, I learned how to just handle not responding to the media or how to, you know, get my owners to trust me and say, like, do not talk to a member of the media, have them call me. I can, you know, figure out the way, the right terminology to use to keep your project out of the news, because that's when everyone comes out of the woodwork. Love to know on those, I think you said five centers that you own today. Are you utilizing any of that event opportunity, that experience, your love or familiar in your career? And if so, how are you doing that? Absolutely. Um, we have events all of the time. So I'll do, uh, when when I bought my second shopping center after that land deal we talked about earlier, I had, when I bought it in 2008, we had three vacancies. And in 2009, we had 14 because the global financial crisis just was awful for everyone. So what one thing that I did, and I do this a lot at my properties, is I I joined the Chamber of Commerce and we do events like scavenger hunts where we'll do a football themed, you know, uh, event where, you know, where would you go to get tailgate food or where would you go, you know, to buy furniture for your backyard, like a patio store, a sub store. And I would check, you know, and I'd have the, the tenants give me $25 gift cards that I bought from them. I bought those from my tenants and I'd have the chamber of commerce members in the community go through the shopping center and go have to go into the, into the shops to get their little thing checked off. So I remember being in a, in a sushi restaurant where three ladies walked in playing the game, like, Oh, this is very nice. We've never been this, been in this restaurant before, by the way, in the town that they live in and they aren't a member of the chamber. So for example, I've done those events where it gets the community in the stores, gamify it. Then at the end, the people that turn in their cards, which they all finish, get to pull out of a hat the multiple gift cards. So now I've had them come to the shopping center for the event. And now they'll all come back because they all want a gift card to right. the, my tenants in the shopping center. This week, we put up banners around the shopping center. Give your corporate gift from local. I'm a big shop local girl. I mean, I have Starbucks and Panera and I have the nationals too. They don't need the help, right? During, right before, maybe during COVID, I, I can't remember, but I hired a photographer and I had them go into all my local tenants and we did, um, we posted on social media uh, campaigns, shop local campaigns and, and took pictures. We had I have a my University of Miami, one of our common enemies. I have a Canesware store and uh, they do hurricanes, heat, Miami heat, Panthers, Marlins and soccer. And during COVID, I called them and I said, everyone's jonesing for for sports. There's no sports going on. Get your butt in the store, get, you know, um, directors chairs and start interviewing. You have access to all of the, these coaches, these players. You need to be the ESPN the South Florida ESPN. And um, they, like they were dragging their feet, a good idea, but you know, everyone was kind of just in the doldrums. And I said, okay. So then I started doing live videos on Instagram where I would interview tenants. And I, so I started doing it with my own tenants. And then I realized I could do this with prospects. And I actually got some deals out of it where I was just, Hey, you know, I want to interview you. Let's talk about COVID. Your business is closed. You know, your nail salon, how are you, you know, the local nail salon started making masks. So I just became, you know, the little Barbara Walters in South Florida and did anything I could to draw attention or get them to do events in their stores to call attention to them, you know, top of mind, right? So I'm constantly coming up with ideas in, in Cleveland, even though I'm supposed to just be leasing space, we've had multiple events. I met, you know, I met a, a, a guy that was doing something called the Real Black Friday, where he had 300 black business uh, businesses. And we did an expo the weekend of All-Stars game that added to the thousands of people that came to the mall. I've had, I found out about a woman that did a fashion show and she did it at the local art institute in cleveland i said you need to come do it at tower city she's doing it in april in tower city 800 people because again like i said rent is a function of sales and if i can get people into the shopping center as a venue their sales will go up and then i can get more rent i love that uh, as a venue idea because i um 
I hear people all the time talking about like seeking venues and how expensive like hotel spaces or conference right. space. And we have parking. And I'm always have- curious, especially in like the office space, but even in retail too, how often you'll see like in a mall or another space, like brown space or, or dark space and completely being underutilized. And it's a shell. And I'm like, man, why isn't somebody utilizing that for events? I'm all, I'm always amazed, you know, like the mall is like perfect, you know, international mall is right down the road for me. Perfect example, big space. And after a certain time of the day, completely underutilized. You know, Absolutely. Like, Man, that is like Absolutely. money. We call all of the not-for-profits and we say, look at your 2023 calendar, that gala you, you're going to have at the Hilton, you should have in our mall, we'll close off a mall. The mall's closed at night. You can have, we'll decorate it. We have free parking. You, we have restaurants that you can cater. Yeah, it's the malls are great venues. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that you say that. Okay, so you talked about a couple other things. I want to dip in really quickly. Um, there's so much here. We could like really talk for an hour. You you sprinkle throughout the conversation your utilize, utilization of social media, and I, I'm always amazed by your activity on social media, because I'm pretty active on social media and it is almost a full-time job, you know, and and I'll step away occasionally and just say like, I got to focus on like getting whatever deal done. How do you do it? Well, I have a really great team. So when I'm walking and I multitask. So this morning I did two videos because I'm doing a, a an event live tonight on LinkedIn. And I, you know, just did a, a organic one minute, hey, join us tonight, or I'll be on an airplane and I'll think of, you know, someone that I'm coaching will say, I'm having this problem with this. And I go, well, if you have a problem, everyone else is having a problem. So I kind of give my advice. Hey, you know, I've heard that this is a problem. And I give my advice, whether it's a short blurb on Twitter or a long form on LinkedIn. And then I do have a social media person who takes those organic posts that it's me or me, and then she'll recast it and post it in multiple different places. So if it looks, if it looks formal in any way, that's not me, but if it's just me on my, in the camera and, you know, I'll go for three or four days. If I'm not inspired by something, I don't, I don't post to post. I post when I'm inspired that I think someone needs to hear this. And, um, I read a lot. So I get a lot of, um, inspiration from reading and then assigning it a story that has happened in my 36 years. I have a lot of stories. Yeah. And that's great. You, you have definitely inspired me. Um, you know, this podcast for me is really about highlighting women in our business and in our world and getting them to share their experience. Uh, and I've had people say, well, you should talk about your business more. And I'm like, eh, it's, it's land, you know? But I just recently, a few episodes ago, dropped, you know, here are the five things that I see in contracts that like stop progress. And and it's a little bit of a, a detour, but I can't, there, I've had so many comments and people reach out to me and say, you know, I really enjoyed that episode because it was more educational. And for them, they were like, oh, wow, I never knew that was a deal, you know, an issue in a deal. And I'm like, oh yeah. Like, and what I did one day was I wrote down like, the sticking points of everything I was working on at the time. I'm like, I was hitting brick walls left and right on multiple deals. And I was like, you know what? I should just outline what these problems are. And then I jumped on one day and I just talked about it. And I was like, which is great because you helped issues. you. Right. So you helped us, right? So right. I I believe helping. I, you know, I'm not one that, oh, I closed this deal. I'd rather say, I don't know how I got this deal closed because we had these three problems. And, you know, thank God for the cookies because without the cookies, it wouldn't have got, you know, I'm trying to give them ideas of how to overcome obstacles. So I think that's a great podcast you did. Yeah. So, and I I love that you brought up the cookie incident because my daughter is a senior at FSU for for you. There you go. You get, told you I was married to a Noel and I am raising one as well. Um, She's a sales major. Right. And, and I always tell her, she's like, oh, you know, some people will evade me. And I'm like, you know what? I have been known to sit in parking lots and I'll say like, hey, I'm not a stalker, but I've been trying to get in touch with you for like 16 times. And I just, I don't want to call you anymore, but I need an, a yes or a no. I just need, I, if the, if the answer is no, that's okay. 
I just need a yes or a no, or maybe, or not right now. And I was like, you know, and if you're polite, like you said, right. like people usually will communicate with you and especially with a woman, that's one advantage I think we do have. For sure. I I've done, I've sent pizzas at 1130 saying, enjoy your lunch. Just call me when you can. And I have a friend who actually sent a shoe and a one shoe in a shoe box and saying, just trying to get a, my foot in the door. Love I think it. creativity goes a long way. And I almost feel like it works better now than what it did 20 years ago because just people just don't do those things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. So the other thing I want to kind of dip into, uh, you're talking about helping is this quest for you to see more women investors. How are you going to make that a reality? Talking about it on podcasts. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I have a conference. I've, I had the virtual one two years ago, last year in person. And this year it's in March in Orlando. I hope you can come. And I put women on stage that are investors because what I've learned in my surveys is p that women are afraid. They think investing is too complicated and they don't know other women that are doing it. So there's a saying, if you see it, you can be it. Yep. So I've had women on stage that bought their first shopping center, their first self-storage, their billionth triple net deal, their fourth hotel, their 10,000 apartment unit. So I've had run the gamut from first, you know, starting out to a billionaire and, um, and, and putting them on stage talking about how did you go overcome your fear? What were the obstacles? You know, and, and so, so that is how I'm just trying to spread the word. I was just in New York at a shopping center conference and of my 25 meetings, 20 were with women, you know, CBR, you know, big firms with the women's group in their firms. So I'm just trying to sort out women to say, you know, are I spoke um, Tuesday night in New York at a at a group called Pipeline, and it's a women's group in the Northeast. And I brought three friends who are investors, and we talked about how we bought our first deal and how were we scared, and of course we were scared. But and is it complicated? Of course it is. But so is net. So is the stock market. You know, I dropped eighty percent on my Netflix stock in the last six months. So you know, if you have money, where are you putting it? And if you do what we do every day, we're in the business every day. You see things, I see things. We shouldn't let the guy next door or down the street take advantage of these things we're seeing because we're doing it. So I'm very passionate. You know, I'm glad that there's 36% of women in our industry now. When I started in 1986, it was probably 3%. Certainly, we've grown. So now, I so we don't have to worry about that any. I mean, it's still low, thirty six percent, but three percent are only investors. That has to change because that money is in other places. It's mostly in the stock market. I'm finding. Yeah, and I would imagine what you're because I see it in my business. So I would imagine it translates to your space when you're talking to women who have uh, investments is that there's been a significant generational shift in terms of um, the inheritance that many women have access to now than that maybe they didn't have access to 40 years ago because yeah. that stayed predominantly on the male side of families. Yes. You know, because I know for now, like I, and it's been great for me, I have a lot more women landowners. Yay. Which is awesome. Now, not all of them purchased. Some inherited it. Some, right. you know, a spouse passed away, you know, unfortunately, but now they find themselves. And so for them, you know, they're owning it. They don't really understand what it is. And, you know, I would say a good, I've seen a big shift in the last five years of women wanting to do business with women, which I'm, I'm here for all of it. You know, me too. Like, thank God. Finally. Me too. Um, so I'd love that. So tell me when, when is that course that in Orlando? It's, so it's a conference. Uh, it's a one day conference. It's March 8th, March 8th. Okay. It's we'll make sure that we get investment a link. day. I mean, women's international business day or something. Okay. So I'll make sure I get a link from you so that we can put that in the show notes. Um, and then I know, uh, we've gone on for a while and we're going to do rapid fire last three questions really quick here. 
Um, and I know that this was throughout the whole interview, but I'm sure you'll come up with something else. If a young woman called you today and said, hi, I want to buy my first deal. Okay, young. Maybe maybe has money, maybe not. Beth, what what piece of advice could you give her to make sure that she can be successful? So I know you believe in this too. I think work ethic is the number one thing because it's the only thing we can control. We can't control that we're female. We can't control the economy. We can't control bosses that are awful. We can't control interest rates. What we can control is our work ethic. And and by far, that is the number one thing that's contributed to any success I've had. I, I was there on Saturdays. I was there late at night. I did, you know, like your dad, learning how to walk again, work ethic, the what you put into it, you will definitely get out of it. So I would tell her that and I would tell her to save her shekels because, you know, I didn't, I got asked to invest three times and didn't have the money because I had the Jaguar and I had the three week first class trip to Hawaii, among other things. So finally, I, I uh, wised up and woke up. And from that point on, I started saving from every commission check it started with 10% and then I went to 20% and that is how I've been able to build the portfolio. So work hard and make sure you save your money for the future and not for the impulsive buy now. That's perfect advice. Very, very good. I agree with all of that. Okay. Uh, next question is, is uh, other than your own uh, interviews and social media and podcasts and my podcast, is there a podcast or a book or a series of books that you find incredibly inspirational that you think everyone in this business that's listening here today should check out? So the most inspirational book I've ever read is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I, I was doing a bike challenge where I biked 496 miles in a month. And that it, it goes by the day of the month. So in the on the first day of the month, you bike one mile, you know, the fifth day, five miles, you know, every day, the last week. So you're biking 20, 21, 22, 20. I started reading this book, Can't Hurt Me on the 20th day. I don't think I would have finished all those miles without him, his book in my year. It was so motiv motivating, so motivating. Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins. Awesome. Great. I'm going to put that on my list to uh, to listen to. And then finally, I know that, you know, we talked about your social media presence. Where can people follow you? Where's the best place to keep up with you? Probably LinkedIn. Um, I would say LinkedIn first and then Instagram and Twitter second. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Beth, I want to thank you again for coming on, sharing your story. It's quite inspirational. You do so much for the industry, especially for the next generation coming up. Uh, for folks who are listening that, you know, enjoyed the, the conversation today, we definitely will make sure all of Beth's links are in the show notes so you can go check her out. I know you do a ton of uh, coursework on canvassing and building those skills. I wish I could canvas in the land business. Um, I think I joked around with you about that, but, you know, landowners can be interesting and I don't want to get shot. Uh, by, you know, <laughs> hopping somebody's cattle feds and like kind of walking up to the door. You never know about what might happen. Uh, but I Be do careful. think that it's uh, it's a great, great tool uh, and thing that you encourage and teach. And again, thank you for all of your insight and for, you know, making sure that women can build wealth for themselves and for their future generations. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for having me. And I hope I see you in March. All right. See you soon. Thanks, Beth. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and rate us so that we can be found by other women in our industry. And if you know women who are working in land and development, please share this podcast with them. And if you know a total rock star woman, badass chick who is killing it in land and development anywhere in North America, I want to know who she is. Please reach out to me so that I can feature her on an upcoming episode.